Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. Japan has a new reigning monarch after the abdication of Emperor Akihito. David McNeil in Tokyo will tell us later about the new man on the imperial throne, Emperor Naruhito, and how he might shape the future of the Japanese monarchy. But first to Brussels, and EU leaders will hold a special summit in Cebu, Romania on Thursday at a highly significant and uncertain moment, two weeks before European Parliament elections and with the Brexit question far from settled. Our Europe editor, Patrick Smith, joins me from Brussels to tell us what to expect from the meeting. Paddy, Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker has just held a news conference there ahead of the summit, and I believe he spoke of regrets about staying silent as lies were told during the Brexit campaign in the UK. It sounded like strong stuff. Uh, What has he been saying and, and anything else come from that press conference? Well, most of his speech today was about the record of the Commission in, in terms of the last five years. It's success in creating jobs, it's success in, in stimulating in investment, um, basically arguing that Sibiu uh, has to basically more of the same is what he's advocating for the Sibiu summit. Um, Sibiu is going to be largely a Brexit-free uh, summit. It, it was supposed to happen after the British had left uh, the European Union, and it was supposed to set the scene for a future, a Brexit-free future for the European Union, convince people that the uh, uh, European Union had indeed got a future after after the British uh, leave. Uh, and so the extension given to the British is, has somewhat uh, thrown people here, uh, and it's not so clear what Sibiu is going to be about. And of course, it's also ahead of the European elections. The idea was to send a strong message uh, to the European electorate that uh, Brussels and the European Union was capable of great things. It had the imagination to go forward and all the rest. The problem is that that's not a message which is going down particularly well with electorates at the moment who are turning to populism and who are blaming Brussels for everything that's gone wrong. Uh, and so the, the, the some, to some extent, the message had to be toned down. Anyway, the leaders will get a chance to get together to talk about the future in, in very general terms and also to ponder on, on what they want to do about filling the jobs that are coming up in the um, not-too-distant future from the presidency of the Commission to the, the Council to the European Central Bank. Uh, those are, are, are um, going to be filled in the next couple of months and so Donald Tusk is going to take soundings about how to do that. So in terms of some of the submissions we've seen ahead of the summit, is there, is there any specifics? Well, the main thing is, is Thursday is not a day for decisions. It's a day for just um, brainstorming. And uh, so that there's not going to be any, anything coming out of the summit except a rather bland uh, declaration in which uh, the union declares itself in favour of motherhood and apple pie. Um, there are interesting subtexts going on, and some of the Dutch, for example, have, have put in six documents. Now, instead of talking about great projects of the future, most of them are about doing what the European Union does already, but doing it better, doing it more effectively. And there's also uh, a quite uh, unsubtle reminder to some of the member states that being part of the European Union involves uh, responsibilities as well as rights. And, and that is, seems to be a dig at the Hungarians and the Poles who are very good at demanding 
structural funding and the like, but not so good at, at expressing solidarity uh, with other member states, like in sharing uh, the uh, distribution of, of, of refugees. You mentioned in, a, in, a, in your piece this week in the Irish Times uh, that the Dutch have emerged as a key alternative voice to the, to the Franco-German alliance. How is that the case? Have they been more proactive or is, is, there, is there, if you like, a gap to be filled there? There's a gap to be filled, all right. I, I think there's a sense that with the British leaving, uh, there's, there's a place for a, one of the member states to step forward as, as a voice for uh, fairly, uh, for the small states, for one thing, but also uh, probably for the, the more conservative economically, uh, economic states like uh, the Scandinavian countries, the, the Dutch themselves. And indeed, the Irish. Uh, the Irish are part of this new grouping, which is known as the Hanseatic League, and which has made a number of pronouncements on 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 economic issues. And it's expected that they will they will also develop common stands on on a number of of other issues. So the Dutch. Uh, the Dutch have always regarded themselves as not just a small state, but the biggest of, of the small states, and uh, um, very much part of, of uh, a tradition of, among the Benelux countries, the founder states, uh, and the founder states that, that uh, sees uh, ha- have a vision for the future. But it's pragmatic. It's not. Uh, it's not like uh, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, announcing great projects for the future, it's it's uh, it's it's a much more more uh, sober uh, type of of uh, position. I suppose if we're if we're now in the territory of laying the ground uh, ground for the next group of EU leaders, we're all, we're also I suppose uh, assessing the legacy of the current batch. Um, is that is that true to say? I mean, it seems from Juncker's uh, maybe press conference today and all, and also his his uh, statement ahead of the summit that we are in the business of assess, assessing legacies. Yes, I think that's that's true. Uh, I think there's also, I mean, part of the European elections will be uh, some kind of judgment on on uh, uh, the the present Commission. Two of the major candidates in the European elections, uh, uh, Margaret Vestager and uh, Timmermans, Franz Timmermans, the Dutchman, uh, are candidates for the. Uh, Spitzenkandidat nomination for Commission President. So inevitably, there will be some uh, looking at at uh, what uh, they have done over the past. Juncker's emphasis was on uh, doing less but doing it better. Uh, they're, they're, they've reduced the number of regulations and laws that they've they've passed, but on the other hand, getting them done. And also his his great project was what's known as the the Juncker Plan. Uh, which was an investment fund which was used to leverage other investment. And he claims, the Commission claims, that they've leveraged about 400 billion worth of investment in, in the economy of Europe uh, in, in, the, in the period of the last five years. In his own note ahead of the summit, uh, Donald Tusk, the European Council President, put forward his own strategic agenda for the, for the EU. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, it's very general, very vague. Right. Uh, and in fact, it's it's uh, being stressed here that he's not putting forward uh, a strategic agenda yet. What he's done is is basically collect a number of bullet points uh, that the strategic agenda, which will be which will be de- voted on uh, by the leaders in June, uh, will address. And it has uh, things like uh, uh, more work on on uh, the the single market and the integration of the European economy. Uh, 
more work on a sustainable Europe and and fight against uh, uh, on climate change, projecting the uh, European Union better on the world stage, both in economic terms, but also through the development of its of its uh, military capacity. So they're, they're very general statements, a bit like the declaration that the uh, presidency has drafted for for this summit. Uh, and they will go through uh, the outline, will we'll, we'll certainly get the nod uh, from leaders. It, it's very difficult to... Um, you know, when when things have to be decided by unanimity, it's it's uh, very much the politics of the lowest common denominator. So even difficult uh, member states like Hungary or Italy are, are not objecting uh, to the uh, declaration or the strategic agenda because there's nothing there to be against at the moment. It's when we get into the detail, the nitty gritty, that we will find uh, some difficulties arising. I assume uh, that there's some sense of anxiety around uh, uh, ahead of the European elections. Uh, uh, there were bound to be, uh, and particularly uh, about the likely gains by by populist parties across the bloc. Um, that that's, I guess, going to be a focus of a fair degree of chat, at least informally. Yes, I think it will be informally. It's not. It's not strictly on the agenda. In fact, the the, the idea of this meeting is to look well beyond. Uh, the next parliament to to the strategic objectives for the union in the aftermath of that. But that has to be done in the context of a new balance of forces in the parliament. The parliament has gained over recent years huge legislative powers. So it shares, it's it's called a co-legislator with with the European Council, with the member states. And so uh, the balance in in the uh, parliament is going to be uh, extremely important to getting anything done and agreed by the European Union. Instead of uh, coalitions of two large parties in the Parliament now, it's going to be necessary to build coalitions of three and maybe four to get the majorities that they will need. Okay, just finally, Paddy, could you could you remind us of the steps ahead now in, in terms of the appointment of the next batch of EU leaders, if you like, um, uh, when we can expect that to take place, and what are what are the, the kind of big uh, staging posts in the months ahead? I know there's a summit in June. Yes, well, t- senior commission officials, uh, council officials, this morning talking to journalists explained that the process is not set in stone, and it's really very much at the discretion of of uh, Donald Tusk, the outgoing council president. But it, what is likely to happen is that the um, leaders will meet together informally in the immediate aftermath of of the parliament's uh, vote, the parliament vote. Probably on the 28th of, of, of uh, May, uh, they will be meeting again in June when uh, they have their formal summit, and it's quite likely there'll be another meeting of uh, later in the, in the in the summer in order to tie down the um, the nominations. The problem is it's hugely complicated. There are a number of very important jobs. And the tradition has been that they somehow be allocated, distributed through, uh, in such a way that there's proper representation of all the major political parties, of the major regions and countries, and the gender balance is regarded as as important uh, this time around uh, as well. So balancing those requirements makes for a very difficult uh, time. And as the council official this morning uh, told us, it, it was going to make probably at least three summits. And so we'd be into July probably before we, we know who's got the main jobs. Patrick Smith in Brussels, thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Irish Times. Now to Japan, and the country has entered the Reiwa era in the imperial calendar. Translated into English as Beautiful Harmony, 
after the ascension of 59-year-old Emperor Naruhito to the Chrysanthemum throne, following the abdication of his father Akihito. Naruhito becomes the 126th emperor in the world's oldest hereditary monarchy, and the first of the post-war generation. How will his reign chime with the challenges of modern Japan? Dave McNeil joins me on the line from Tokyo. David, can you tell us something of Naruhito's background? I know, for example, that he studied at Oxford in the 1980s. That's right. Well, he's the first um, member of the imperial family uh, to rule as emperor, who um, was raised after the war at 59. Uh, he has no experience of the war, and like his dad, of course, who remembers it and remembers um, being bombed out of Tokyo. Um, and uh, he ha- was educated um, quite liberally, and he was the first uh, imperial heir who actually um, was raised by his family. That was considered revolutionary at the time. You know, most of these children were raised by nannies or by minders. Um, so his parents, Emperor Akihito, uh, and uh, Prince uh, uh, Empress Masako re- made a point of uh, looking after him themselves. And as you said, uh, as quite a young man, he was sent to the UK and uh, he studied for two years. Uh, his specialist subject, in case anybody's interested, uh, was uh, waterways, 18th century, 19th century waterways in England. Um, and uh, he studied the Thames River in particular. And in fact, his biography is called The Thames and I. Um, he's considered to be uh, on the liberal spectrum of political views insofar as we can tell, uh, very little sneaks out, but um, he's widely considered to be in the same kind of political ballpark, if you like, as his dad, Akihito. We know, of course, that that after the Second World War, Emperor Hirohito was, was forced to renounce his status as a living god. So is the contemporary emperor's role very similar to that of, of figureheads in, say, the UK and the Netherlands, or, or is there any difference in Japan? Well, I think that's certainly the role that the Americans, the allies who who ran Japan after the war, of course, Japan lost the war, and the occupation, uh, which was dominated by the Americans, essentially tried to reshape the monarchy uh, as uh, a symbol um, uh, and to take all its power away because they considered the emperor, uh, this is Akihito's father, Hirohito, they considered him... Uh, partly responsible for uh, the carnage of the 1930s and the 40s uh, because people were raised to think of him as a god and to go out and fight in his name. So, yes, they did try to turn him into a symbol after the war, and uh, they largely succeeded. The emperor doesn't have any political power, but there are important differences, I think, as well, with uh, certainly the British monarchy. Uh, First of all, the Japanese monarchy doesn't have or has very little personal wealth, certainly compared to the UK monarchs. Uh, they're they're not personally rich, uh, and they don't uh, have access to the same kind of freedoms as the British monarchs. You know, it would be unthinkable, for example, for Naruhito to go off on a skiing holiday for weeks or months on end, you know, um, um, and he doesn't have access to a huge floating budget and so on. Um, I think that's one important difference. Uh, And another one is that there are certain people, I think it's fair to say, uh, on the conservative spectrum around the uh, imperial family who would like it to have uh, a sort of a larger role. They would like to bring the emperor um, uh, back uh, to something uh, similar to the role he had uh, before the Americans took away his power. They consider it a bit of an insult, in fact, that the that the emperor was made into a symbol after the war. 
And can that be done or is there any prospect of that in the years and I suppose decades ahead of the, the status of the emperor changing? I think it's unlikely. I think because um, memories are so fresh of, you know, what happened during the 1930s and 40s. Um, and there's still a great deal of resistance to uh, giving the emperor any more power. Um, but, you know, it tends to come down to uh, quite symbolic gestures. For example, uh, Emperor Hirohito uh, stopped going to Yasukuni Shrine. Yasukuni Shrine is the shrine in the middle of Tokyo, of course, that venerates Japan's war dead, uh, including uh, its war uh, leaders, the people who led the war in the 1930s and 40s. And he stopped going, it is thought, it is widely believed, because uh, the war criminals, these people who were convicted of war crimes, were uh, enshrined there. And the debate at the moment, one of the debates around the emperor is whether he should go, return to Yasukuni Shrine or visit there. Uh, and there's, a lot of, there's quite a lot of conservative pressure on him to do that. Uh, and uh, one of the sort of um, issues, if you like, for the new emperor will be whether he's able to resist those pressures. And he's expected to do it, but um, for how long, we don't know. Now, you mentioned, obviously, that the wealth of other monarchies, um, and that's one of the reasons that they are resented in some countries, given that the Japanese monarchy does not have, have that wealth. Are they still resented? Or how is that relationship with the public and how are they viewed? Well, I, I mean, I think there's a small minority of the Japanese public, um, which uh, I suppose would view the emperor uh, uh, or certainly the emperor's system with some resentment because of its role during the war. But I do think they are a minority. They tend to be on the left. I think the overwhelming um, sentiment among the sort of uh, the great Japanese public would be uh, in, uh, largely indifference. You know, they they tend to they tend to have quite a distant view of the imp of the imperial family and um, take they don't take certainly young people don't take a lot of interest in it. Um, you know, for example, I teach at a university here in Tokyo and I ask my students uh, before the transition of emperors, uh, what was happening, we asked them what was happening next week. And very few of them could tell me either that the imperial era was was changing or uh, could tell me the name of the new emperor, which I found quite extraordinary given the amount of media attention. Um, but, I, but I don't think there's, you know, there's not that much Republican sentiment in Japan. You see these polls published in the British media sometimes. Uh, if I recall, there was one uh, 15 or 20 years ago, which uh, which said that um, the the percentage of people in the UK who wanted to abolish the uh, or scrap the Jap uh, the uh, uh, royal family in the UK was quite high. I think approaching 50 percent, if not more. You just don't get those kind of polls here, and you don't really get those kind of sentiment. They're just left to their own devices, I think. Now, Narahito's wife Masako, as a female, wasn't allowed to attend last week's ceremony, uh, and their only child, Princess Aiko, is is not allowed to ascend to the throne. So how likely is it the question of female succession and, and other issues around females will be addressed during Narahito's reign? Well, I, I think it's very likely. I mean, so just to give some background here again, um, the Americans after the war, they pruned the imperial family tree kind of brutally. Um, and what that meant is um, that the number of people who could inherit the uh, the throne, could accede to the throne, um, is very small. There's only two male heirs left now, essentially, and one of them is... 12 years old, that's Prince Hisahito. Um, 
And, and I think that um, that's creating a bit of a crisis because there's so much history uh, invested in this family. Um, they claim to to be 2,600 years old before the birth of Christ. I think it's very unlikely that they would just let it go. So, so what that means is they have two essentially two choices, as I see it. One is to allow a female to uh, to, to sit on the chrysanthemum throne. Uh, the other is to uh, to bring in members of the um, family that were chopped off after the war. In other words, to um, to expand the tree again, you know, um, and it's really uh, going to be a debate during Naruhito's reign about which of those two wins. My money, I think, is on female uh, succession, but uh, there's there's uh, various conservative forces reigned against that. Some of them came out the last time they had a debate, which is about a decade ago. Uh, you know, saying that it was it, it was likely, for example, that a female emperor might go abroad and marry a a foreigner and what would that do to the sort of purity of the imperial bloodline and so on. Those were the kind of debates that were taking place. And I think uh, if the succession issue comes up again, those debates may raise their may raise their, their heads again, I think. Now, Empress uh, Masako, uh, who was a former diplomat, uh, she struggled with depression since becoming part of the, the family and, and, and some other health issues. Can you tell us a little about her and how significant a, a figure she will be? Well, she um, is uh, a, a Harvard-trained diplomat and was expected to pursue a diplomatic career, in fact, before she met Naruhito. Now, Naruhito struggled to find uh, a wife, and this was hugely important for the institution that he do so. Uh, something dozens of women had turned him down, presumably because they didn't want to enter this institution with all of the attendant kind of rules uh, and pressures that come with it. And she agreed after years of wooing by him only because he said that he would protect her. And what we what we understand from that is protect her from the pressures of the of the position. Um, and to cut a very long story short, she was under some pressure to have a child, an heir. Um, and uh, it's thought that she had uh, in vitro fertilization, although this is a taboo, something of a taboo in Japan to mention, to, to have her child, Aiko, uh, Princess Aiko, who turns out was a girl and therefore ineligible. And sometime after that, uh, she succumbed to, uh, to what is widely believed to be depression. Um, the, the Imperial Household Agency calls it um, an adjustment disorder. Uh, that's their euphemism for it. But she's certainly been treated for it. And what it has meant, in essence, is that she has been something of a recluse, uh, for some years, she has retreated from a lot of her official duties and only recently actually started to um, to return. So I've been at press conferences, for example, where Naruhito has been by himself and has to have to explain that, that his wife is still recovering. Um, so I think what, what you will see, or at least there'll be a lot of attention on how she copes with the pressures of being uh, the empress by her husband's side, uh, and whether she'll be able to, uh, to to meet her official duties. You mentioned uh, some of the challenges already facing Naruhito. Are, th- are there any others? I mean, are there any uh, immediate and, and, and mid-term challenges he, he faces? And, and has he given any hints at how he might deal with them? Well, I, I think um, because of all the forces that swirl around the imperial family, um, you know, there are various groups who look for legitimacy in the emperor, as they did during the war. And there'll be a certain amount of pressure on him uh, I suppose, to um, to perform in a certain way, to act in a certain way. 
Um, his father found a way within the strictures of the role to to cast this kind of liberal shape. You know, like he would he would give these um, oblique messages, which were interpreted as being anti-war, uh, or which were interpreted as being a criticism of the drift towards um, uh, amnesia, um, historical amnesia about Japan's war behavior. Uh, and and of course, he also found time to to travel around. Asia and visit some of the sites where Japan, where the Japanese military um, had um, had run amok in the 1930s and 40s. So, so I think what Naruhito will be will will be under pressure to, is to sort of um, claim his own role, you know, to stake out his own uh, his own sort of um, uh, shape and his own narrative in this new role, uh, and to avoid or to seek to avoid some of the pressures that will inevitably be brought to bear on him. Akihito's legacy is a, a positive one overall. Yeah, I think he is. I mean, he's very, very few people say say anything bad about him. He is he is widely um, respected and even loved. Um, insofar as you can love a distant figure like that, you know, he he went uh, first of all a, a long way towards uh, trying to bring the family out of the shadow cast cast by his father. First of all, um, and and also there were there were these gestures he made. Which um, don't seem consequential, perhaps to people who don't follow the follow these things closely. But to Japanese people who were brought up to think of his father and the institution itself as being godlike, uh, they were quite remarkable. You know, like one of the most famous, for example, is that he would travel around Japan after uh, natural disasters, earthquakes, and so on, and he would sit on the floor or kneel on the floor of these refugee centers, community centers with uh, with some of the victims of these disasters, uh, sort of giving them comfort. And that was seen as, you know, as being um, uh, somewhat revolutionary, the idea of this sort of uh, man-god uh, coming back down to earth and kneeling among the people, being at the same height as the people. Uh, so I think it's fair to say yeah, that he is, he is hugely respected um, uh, as a figure, yeah. Dave McNeil in Tokyo, thank you for joining us. You're more than welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks to today's contributors, Patrick Smith and Dave McNeil. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon. I'm Dave McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever platform you use or at irishtimes.com podcasts.